the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome, folks, again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and along with it, a wonderful Merry Christmas to you. Uh, you're plugged into AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Pete Paquette got us on the air. He's our engineer. Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And I want to introduce you to Timothy Gagno. He's up in the Florida Panhandle, author of the Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. Timothy, welcome to Orlando. It's uh, so... So nice to catch up with you, and a Merry Christmas to you. Oh, Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. Thank you very much for having me. Timothy, I want to know the background of this remarkable work. How did it come about, and what's the mission here? Well, uh, you know, you had said it. The Illuminated Messiah Bible is uh, 66 original Messianic portraits. It's basically Jesus from every book of the Bible. Um, it's also got commentaries explaining the theology behind every brushstroke. Uh, it's a modern twist on the illuminated manuscript Bibles from the Middle Ages. Um, the Book of Kells was probably the most famous one. It's called Medieval Europe's Greatest Masterpiece. This is a modern take on that where uh, we combine uh, beautiful narrative paintings with calligraphy of the actual scriptures and then gold leaf. And uh, it's based off of an actually a much older tradition called Hidur Mitzvah, which is a Hebrew tradition uh, that goes all the way back to the Babylonian captivity, where they translated uh, Exodus 15:2 to read uh, the beautification of the Torah, but in practical application, it means to exalt or worship God by creating beautiful things. And really, that's what visual art can be. It, it can be a very powerful form of worship. Timothy, first of all, I want you to speak to us about the majestic King James Version since 1611. Uh, can you expand on that? Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, translation. Uh, it, it's a lot of people, it is their favorite translation. A lot of a lot of us, you know, when we when we hear the word of God in our head, it's in the King James. Um, it's just beautifully poetic. Um, some people say it's hard to read, but it's actually quite easy. It, it's actually only a, a a third grade reading level, 
And so when you read it, it actually has the ability to increase your reading comprehension skills quite a bit. Uh, but if you like Shakespeare, if, if you like Romeo and Juliet, the King James Version is the Bible for you. Um, and for the Illuminated Messiah being based off of medieval Illuminated Manuscript Bibles, it was the perfect choice uh, to, to, to honor that. And, uh, and it's just, like I said, it, we have a beautiful Bible with the beautiful uh, language of the King James Version, and I just absolutely love it. Tim, I'm fascinated by this thought that uh, the King James Version is the standard by which all translations are measured in the most printed book of all time. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, um, again, you know, for, for most for most people, when they think about the Bible, they don't think about modern translations. They think in their head, you know, that these are the thousands of therefores. And uh, like I said, it, it is very, very beautiful to read out loud, especially. Uh, there's just something powerful about uh, the King James Version. And you're absolutely right. It is a very accurate translation. Um, you know, it's a word-for-word translation. And so when you're reading it, it, it has some gravitas to it. It has some power to it um, that the, the sometimes modern translations can lack. And I really, really appreciate um, some of the things that the King James Version brings to the table um, that is just, just stunning and powerful. The, um, you know, it is the one of the older translations, um, you know, and it, it's very accurate. You know, I think every household needs to have anybody that does serious study of the Bible. You need to have a King James Version in, in that library. I think it's very important to do, to do that as a comparative study. So when I'm reading and when I'm doing my Bible studies, um, I make sure that I have modern translations, but that I also have a King James Version as well as Greek and Hebrew translations, that, that when I really want to dive deep, a King James Version is always, always there. Timothy Gagno is our guest. He's in Florida up in the Panhandle, and we're talking about the Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. Timothy, how did the King James Version come about? What, what, what took place? Uh, well, I mean, it was just that King James wanted a Bible. <laughs> he wanted a, a, an English translation. And so he set a, a group of people together um, to do just that. And, and they got together and they worked very hard um, getting the, the oldest translations that they could get their hands on at the time. And they were extremely meticulous in their translation. Again, the King James Version is what we call a word-for-word translation. In other words, what the, um, this is what the Greek word, this is what the Hebrew word is, and then they translated exactly into that. Uh, at the time, they were writing in, at their time, modern English. It's obviously not modern English now, uh, the English language is one of the most rapidly changing languages in the world. And so modern English is very different. But the, that word-for-word translation creates an incredible accuracy that they were uh, very much a, that was one of their major goals in writing the King James Version was accuracy. And uh, they worked very hard to do that, uh, the people that were, that were actually translating it. 
that was their that was their primary goal was to get absolute accuracy and they were very successful in doing that one of the other things that's interesting about uh, the King James Version is the language. Um, the older English had some very interesting things. You know, all those these, thous, and therefores are actually important because it tells you exactly who we're talking to. Um, you know, ancient Hebrew is and and uh, and Greek. It, it's very good about letting you know I'm talking to you or I'm talking to them. And in the King James, the these, the thous, the therefores. Um, is it a V? Is it a thou? Is it a you? Is it, is it a he? Those things matter. And in modern English, we don't have that anymore, where sometimes you can't tell who is, the, who is God addressing in this sentence. In the King James, you know exactly who that is. So it's very interesting. It's very powerful. But the, um, the translators of that, of that um, version were very, very good in getting that word-for-word translation. And so that's one of the things that that's probably one of the greatest benefits of the King James is its incredible accuracy. Timothy, what do we know about King James himself? Uh, well, we, we know quite a bit. I mean, a, a simple Google search uh, will, will show you those things. Um, um, he, he, was, he was a man of faith and he wanted to, I mean, he wasn't a perfect man. I mean, I don't know too many, you know, medieval kings that were, <laughs> but, um, you know, he had a vision and he wanted to get that vision out. And he had a plan for, you know, society and culture. And he knew that uh, there were things about the Word of God that were important to that and to his vision. And so he, you know, he, he produced that Bible and he, and he commissioned that translation to get the Word of God into the people's hands. Timothy Gagnon is our guest. And we're talking about the illuminated Messiah Bible. Uh, tell me about who did these portraits. Uh, actually, I did. <laughs> so, so, Timothy, uh, you're, I, I'm, I, you're I'm an, both an artist. Yes, I, I am. A, I'm actually a portrait artist. Uh, and uh, I work in the realism style in oils and acrylics. Wow. And uh, I have been working in the studio behind the scenes for five years. I stopped everything, and for five years, I worked on these 66 Messianic portraits. Um, and uh, just, like I said, five years behind the scenes, working hard. And then uh, the, the baby's finally here, uh, if you will, uh, on the shelves everywhere books are sold. It's pretty exciting. Um, but the Lord just put this on my heart, and and I had to paint it, and uh, it just it just grew and grew and grew. Um, the portraits are, um, again, they're based off of illuminated manuscripts uh, from the Middle Ages, and that what that is that's an art form that's very ancient. Uh, it had its heyday uh, in the eighth and ninth century, um, and so that. But that tradition that was actually started by um, King Charlemagne and um, in France, uh, he was he was the uh, uh, at the time the Holy Roman Emperor, the, the king of the France, the France, and uh, he started a school and they they made Bibles and they made these medieval uh, illuminated manuscript Bibles. Uh, they made ten of them in his school called the Ada School or the Ancient School. And uh, we have a modern twist on that. When the printing press came out, 
illuminated manuscripts, handwritten, hand-drawn, went the way of the dinosaur. And so this is actually only the third illuminated manuscript Bible since the printing press was invented in 1440. So over 700 years, almost 750 years since. There's only been two others. Um, and so this is the third one. And the artwork um, is a very modern take on that, where the, uh, the, I use the realism style. I try to make my painting look as real as possible. And they're narrative paintings. So I actually take these particular passages, these messianic passages from the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah, who he is, and, and what he's going to be like, and how would the people recognize him when he comes, and then their fulfillment in the New Testament. So I paint those particular passages, 66 of them anyway. Uh, there are actually about 73 messianic passages that both uh, Hebrew and Christian scholars agree are 100% about the Messiah. Timothy, so I painted those. Timothy Gagnon. Tim, we got to take a break. We're coming right back. Uh, Timothy Gagnon is with us. The Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned to AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Timothy Gagnon is in uh, Panama City Beach. He's uh, up on the panhandle. We're talking about his book, The Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. Timothy, when did you realize you had uh, artistic skills? Well, I've always been uh, an artist. Uh, that was something that I, if I know anything, I know that God made me to be an artist. Um, I always say my creator created me to create. And when I'm making art, I can feel my maker's pleasure. Now, uh, your older listeners might know that that's a, that's a play off of a quote from the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, but it's true. Uh, I can connect with the creator God in a very unique way, because I'm also a creator. I'm a maker. And, and when I'm sitting in the studio and I'm painting and I'm creating a piece of art, I'm connecting with God in a very dynamic and very um, powerful way. And, you know, I don't make art for God. I create art with God. It's a collaborative process. Uh, I'm spending time with my, with my dad, you know, when I was a little boy, I used to, my dad, he tied flies for fly fishing and he would sit at his desk and he would make, he'd take feathers and hooks and all these things. And he would make this beautiful um, lure to catch fish with. And I would sit at that chair with him for hours watching him create those things. And when I'm painting at the easel, um, that's what it is. It's, it's me and God spending time together um, and creating. And so it doesn't matter if I'm painting a, a biblical narrative or an illumination or if I'm painting two polar bears in a snowstorm. Uh, that collaboration with God really shines through. Now, take us through uh, a couple of books here. Uh, let's start with Genesis, Tim. Uh, okay. what, what, what would be the uh, portrait of Jesus that you would do there? I'm curious. Okay, so in that one, the Genesis is a perfect example because that is the location of the very first messianic prophecy. 
It was right after Adam and Eve had sinned and God had lined them up, and you know, Adam, Eve, and the devil, and he's scolding them all and he's laying out the punishment for their sins. And right after he does that, he gives the prom the first ever promise of the Savior, the Messiah. This this man, this descendant of Eve who is going to come and repair the breach that sin caused between God and man, that he was going to restore the relationship that Adam and Eve had destroyed. And it's in Genesis 3.15, and it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the first ever time that we learn about this promised Messiah, this promised Savior. And so in this painting, I painted um, a woman who's pregnant, and she's standing in a garden, and she's looking down at, at, her, at her, the child in her belly, and the words of the scripture are all in that, and in the grove in the trees with all the fruit, the serpent is, is coiling down, and it's looking menacingly at the woman's belly. And instead of Eve, I painted Mary. And it's because the fulfillment of this passage is not Eve. It's towards Eve, and it's about Eve. But it's promising the child that will come one day, and that child is Jesus. And so you can say in many ways that, that Mary being pregnant with the Messiah is the direct fulfillment of this messianic pro promise that was given to Eve in the garden. And so that's the painting uh, that we have here uh, in the Illuminated Messiah Bible. So then let's just go to Exodus. Uh, tell us about what you would have done there. Okay. Now in Exodus, we have another one that's great. And I'm flipping in my Bible to that exactly. I, I, you know, the publishers did a great job. Uh, taking this, you know, as an artist, you do all these paintings and you're worried, like, what are they going to look like in the Bible when they're printed, you know? And my gosh, it is gorgeous. This is just a beautiful <laughs> Bible. The prints are absolutely fabulous. But in Exodus, uh, this one is about uh, the Passover. And it's about uh, putting the blood of the lamb on uh, the doorposts and the lintels of your doors and things like that. And I have a picture of, uh, this is a very, uh, both a realism painting, but it has some um, abstract art aspects to it. And so the painting shows uh, the pyramids of Egypt, because what better way to, 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 to show Egypt in an abstract way than to paint the pyramids. And so you see the pyramids, almost like a landscape painting of the pyramids, the Great Pyramids. And then um, above that in the sky, you see this, uh, red, like abstract splattering of blood. Uh, and then in that, in the blood, uh, it says Exodus 12, 13, which reads, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And so that again is a promise of how Jesus's shed blood is our, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so uh, most Christian theologians 
look at this passage and the Passover blood that was put on their doorposts um, in Egypt as a kind of like a visual word picture of what the Messiah's purpose was for. Why does he come? And it's, and it's so that his blood can uh, save us from our sins and that the wrath of God will pass over us. So, Tim, let me go um, into the New Testament and let's uh, let's start with Matthew. Uh, what what would you have uh, done there? What kind of artwork? Oh, now Matthew is great. He it's one of my this is one of my favorite paintings because as an artist, every artist that has ever artist in the history of artists, um, they always want to do a Madonna and Child. It, it's just one of those things that as an artist that you want to do. And so in the Illuminated Messiah Bible, there's actually two. Um, Madonna and Childs. One is in the book of Isaiah, and the other is in Matthew. And in a way, there it's prophecy and fulfillment. And so in Matthew, uh, it's Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-one, and it says, "And he shall bring, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." And so my dear friend uh, Jolene uh, had recently had a brand new baby boy. And uh, I had seen some of the pictures of her holding her son, and I immediately knew uh, where I was going to find my Mary and baby Jesus for the Illuminated Messiah Bible. And so I asked her if they would pose uh, and model for uh, the paintings. And so uh, they are in both Isaiah and this one in Matthew. Now, what's interesting about this one in Matthew, you can kind of see it. Above Mary's head, you see this brown arch going across the uh, the top where the word Matthew 121 is. And one of the coolest aspects about this Bible is when you're looking at this painting in Matthew, you see the Madonna and child, you see Mary and baby Jesus, and you see the scripture. And it's like, oh, what a cute little painting. But there's a little teaser in this painting. All 66 of these paintings combined together and they form a giant, these are all originally eight by 10 paintings. Um, every one of these paintings, even though they're a standalone individual painting, they combine together and they form a 12 and a half foot cross. And in, when you see the cross, you no longer see the individual paintings. They reveal a hidden polyptych portrait of the crucified Christ. So when you're looking at that giant 12 foot cross, you see Jesus on the cross. And so hidden in this one of Matthew is a part of his wrist. Uh, in another passage, uh, another book, there's uh, the line of the tribe of Judah. That's his left kneecap. His right kneecap is a portrait of uh, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, the uh, Jonah, in the book of Jonah, uh, that's his right wrist. And so there are little things hidden in every painting. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is parting the Red Sea, in the crashing waves, Jesus's toes are there. Mm. So all these paintings combine together, and you see this giant, beautiful uh, crucifix uh, with a portrait of Jesus on, on the cross. Timothy, Very powerful. Timothy, we've got two minutes left. Uh, the book of John. Tell us about that. Oh, that's another great one. The book of John is one of my favorites. Um, you know, the thing about this one is, uh, this is uh, the, the model that posed for this. Um, 
he posed for all the Jesus paintings, but boy, I'll tell you what, I, I nailed it this one. He, it looks just like the guy. <laughs> so I'm pretty happy about the, the book of John. But this is Jesus looking up in prayer. And, um, you know, uh, this is from John chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, this is Christmas time. Jesus, this is God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, walking a mile in our shoes, you know. Jesus became a man. God became a human. And that's why we sing Emmanuel, God with us at this time of year. And this painting just shows Jesus, the man, looking up to his father in prayer. And he's wearing a, he's wearing a Jewish prayer shawl. And it, the Jewish prayer shawl represents the word of God. Each one of the little tassels represents one of the 613 laws of Moses. And so here you have the Word of God wrapping himself in the Word of God in prayer. And I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Folks, you've been listening to Timothy Gagno, and I would encourage you, boy, you've got just a little bit of time uh, before Christmas actually is here. Uh, Somebody could really, really enjoy having this as a gift. The Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus, King James Version, our guest up in the panhandle. And what a great guest he has been, Timothy Gagno. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Our guest uh, in that first segment, Timothy Gagno, talking about uh, the illuminated Messiah Bible that's just out, 66 portraits of Jesus. Sounds magnificent. Well, we go from the panhandle of Florida to northwest Colorado, and we found Barry Rowan there out in the middle of uh, skiing country. Uh, His book is out, The Spiritual Art of Business, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. Uh, Barry, so nice to catch up with you. Welcome to Orlando. Thanks so much, Pat. Great to be with you. How did this book come about? Why was it important to write? Well, it really came out of my own struggle uh, to find meaning in my work that began in my late 20s. And uh, out of that, I came to a surrendered faith that then led to the, an eight-year sojourn of writing about 350 pages to myself, mostly in the middle of the night, trying to understand the perspective of work that would bring meaning to it. And as I've spoken literally around the world on this topic dozens of times, uh, would you just write this down? Because we're wrestling with these questions ourselves and would like to read more about it, think more about it. And so I, it really is autobiographical, but hopefully it, it meets people where they are with so many people having this deep yearning and longing to lead lives that matter. So as you look back as a young man, Barry, uh, what was the struggle about? What What do you think brought it about? What caused it? Well, I was very committed to living a purposeful life and recognizing that we will work about 100,000 hours in our lifetime. I wanted those hours to matter. And so I think that was really at the heart of it, and it started really when I was in college wrestling with 
what to major in. And out of that, I decided to focus on business after getting a degree in chemistry um, and then go into business because I was really drawn to help people. And I thought that this idea of working together with other people would be an opportunity to leverage uh, my contribution to society. And that literally was when in, was the reason I went into business. But I think that after doing that for a number of years, I just uh, was plagued with this question of, of why and by what measure will I judge success in my life. And I, I think I have this deep-seated need, as I think most all of us do, to uh, live a life of meaning and to find a sense of purpose. I, I think that's true of, of everybody, isn't it? When you really get down to it? And uh, you I, don't, think, you don't yeah, re- I think it is. And you really don't have a sense of purpose until you, you invite Jesus to come into your life. Yeah, that was it for me. I mean, uh, that set of questions really started that journey. And uh, out of that, I didn't even know if God was part of the question, but I uh, was no longer knew if I believed in God, actually. So he just had to take me down to bedrock. I stopped going to church, even though I'd gone to church for 30 years of my life uh, because I thought it was hypocritical to worship a God I was no longer sure existed. And then out of that, 16 books and eight months later, I concluded, as the lawyers would say, based on the preponderance of the evidence, I think it's much more likely that God exists than he doesn't. And then to your point, it was, well, what about Jesus? And who are we going to give our life, live our life for ourselves or for God? And and I thought if he is who he says he is, then we need to take him seriously. And his that any of you who do not, not give up everything you have can't be my disciple just haunted me. Yeah. And I'm a very committed committed guy. And I thought, well, if I'm going to follow him, I need to take him at his word. So I basically gave my life to him on a run around the lake near our house. Uh, but as the words I give up, left my lips, there were heel marks in the sand for my heels as I was dragged into the the kingdom, kind of kicking and screaming. But Mm. that was the beginning of the journey, was the surrender. Barry, your book breaks down into four parts. Uh, Tell us about part one, uh, and we've been chatting about it, surrendered, uh, discovering freedom in submission to Jesus. Anything more you want to add there? Well, I think that surrender, paradoxically, is the gateway. And the reason that is, is that we worship this gracious God who will never impose himself on on us. But as we submit our lives to him, it gives him permission to do his supernatural work in us. And that's really the beginning of a transformation, that as we surrender to him, he transforms us makes us into new creations, and then invites that new creation to go out in the world on his behalf uh, to transform the world. So as we're transformed by God, he will transform the world through us. And importantly, it's not us doing the work at that point. It's our primary role is to to abide and to become less so that he can become more in us and really have the kind of impact in the world that he wants to have on this world that he loves so much. Now let's move to part two, transformed, learning new ways of thinking and being. Boy, I think there's a lot of meat in there, Barry. Yeah, as we do surrender our lives to Christ, he, he does uh, his supernatural work, as we were talking about. And uh, for me, it was, I had so many things so wrong for so long, and God had to take me what I, 
through what I would describe as a succession of paradigm shifts. I had about two dozen things wrong, and I was just thinking about work all wrong. And fundamentally, for example, I was living life from the outside in instead of the inside out. I thought, if I just get the right job, somehow I'll be filled up. And and the corollary to that is that um, I was trying to derive meaning from my work instead of bringing meaning to my work. And it really is God's perspective of our work that brings meaning to it. When we, we say, Lord, how is this work you know, advancing your kingdom? And how is it contributing to a better society as seen through your eyes? How is it contributing to human flourishing? And uh, so I, I just had so many things wrong. I mean, another one was identity. The world screams at us that we are what we do, but the deeper truth is what we do is an expression of who we are, and that as we surrender our lives to Christ, and increasingly it becomes no longer we who live, but he who lives in us and through us, um, everything we do becomes an expression of that Christ who is love in us for the benefit of others. Part three, realigned, bringing meaning to our work. Uh, tell us, tell us your thoughts on that, Barry. Yeah, uh, we then really become these new creations and aligned with God's divine design. And I think the real source of our fullness of life is to live within the divine design. And you know, we spend so much of our life, at least I did, living outside of it. And uh, as God transforms us, we become uh, these new creations. We think about life differently. And, I've made lists for myself over the years of B.C. and A.D., how I was before Christ and how I am after Christ. And, uh, of course, still a very long ways to go in the journey. It's a lifelong conversion. But, but I just look at so many things differently as some of the things we've talked about, like identity or um, bringing meaning to our work. But even how I think about my time, that my time is not my time. It's, it's God's time, and this is his life to live through me. And um, and I've gone from kind of a wind-up toy for achievement to a place of gratitude that did not come naturally for me, someone who was focused much more on what's left to be done than what we have been done. And so as God has uh, worked that yeast at least partway through the dough, um, we go into the world in uh, being new, creation, new creatures and living in new ways for God that might um, bring a newness to the world. My guest, Barry Rowan, he uh, is in Colorado. We're talking about his book, The Spiritual Art of Business, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. Barry, I want you to uh, expand on that subtitle, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. How do you go about that? What's that mean? Well, I think it begins with having eyes to see. So we see the seamlessness and the sacredness, really, of the world. And that as we do, we see God's will and his word embedded in every moment. And through that, the ordinary really becomes extraordinary. So the result is we, ha- we live a life that is filled with meaning, this life of connectedness and congruence, that every opportunity or every moment really becomes an opportunity to live out our deepest purpose in life. So I think we're designed to live in this connectedness, connected with God and and seeing how what we're doing in this moment connects to our broadest purpose in life. And, and as that happens, um, there's a, just a joy that comes from being an instrument of the creator of the universe, that we get to be co-creators with him. I kind of think about the, the, the commission with
mission. It's our mission with God. My guest, Barry Rowan. Barry, part four, sent fulfilling God's will in the world. Yes, so this is part of this overall cycle we've been talking about, Pat. So it starts with surrender. As we surrender, we're transformed. We're made into new creations. And and then we are sent into the world. So being new creations is not just for ourselves. It's really for the benefit of the world. And uh, otherwise, we end up being this kind of self-centric, eternally focused, country club church, and I think we're called to be just the opposite, which is to be able to go into the world and, you know, as Jesus said, raise me up that all will be drawn to me. And what does that look like? You know, I think it's not speaking Christianese. It's, uh, as Francis of Assisi would say, preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. So it's setting high standards for the businesses that we operate in. It's uh, having broad definitions of success that go beyond just the financial bottom line. If you're a politician, I think it means working for the common good rather than advancing my own brand. And uh, and as we do this, I think we are called to nudge the world a little closer to God and uh, to be instruments of bringing his kingdom to this earth. And and what it looks like to other people is a, is a place of um, people seeking to do the right thing and caring about one another. And not in a Pollyannish sort of way, but a love that is self-emptying, self-sacrificing for the benefit of things beyond ourselves. Barry Rowan is with us. We have another segment with Barry. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, We gather like this. We've done it for years, and we're always so pleased when you decide to to join us here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be back with Barry Rowan out in Colorado talking about his book, The Spiritual Art of Business. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Barry Rowan is our guest. The Spiritual Art of Business, the name of his book. Barry, um, talk to us about um, going about sharing your faith. To many Christians, that's terrifying. Uh, h- how do you go about it? Well, I I first um, start by looking in the mirror uh, with the hope and the prayer, literally, that my faith would become ever more real, that, that God would, in fact, um, work the yeast all the way through the dough of my soul, that I think God rewrites the software of our souls, literally. And so for me, the most important thing about sharing our faith is to have our faith deepen in ourselves uh, and to have it really transform who we are. And so the sharing of our faith to me is living a life for starters that is exemplary of that idea that we have died to ourselves and that, that Jesus himself lives within us more fully. And so so uh, that's what was always most important to me. So I worked, for example, in building or turning around eight businesses over 40 years, including four public companies. And uh, being a part of public companies, I, I didn't wear my faith on my sleeve, uh, but it's certainly easy to find out uh, that I am a person of faith. And 
people would very often ask, uh, one of my favorite questions is, you know, would you just tell us what makes you tick? Mm. And uh, my res- response was usually, well, at what level would you like to have this conversation? <laughs> and uh, you know, people always say, oh, let's get down to the things that matter and talk about the real stuff of life. And so it would lead into a conversation about uh, why do I have the energy that I do to bring to this work or um, what is behind my compassion for people. And uh, hopefully that gives, there's a little bit of the spirit of Jesus that oozes out through my pores that people can see. So. For me, the real starting point of sharing our faith is to have it deepen and then to um, make it real. I think people watch our our feet way more than they watch our lips. And if they see that we're walking in, in the, the truth and, and doing things that they're attracted to, it will cause them to ask questions that we then have an opportunity and even a responsibility to share the 91% of the iceberg that is underneath the ice uh, that most people don't necessarily see on the surface. Mary, uh, talk to us about your uh, education, college, and how you got into business, and and what was your what was your main strength as a businessman, and what uh, what did you want to accomplish when you were a youngster? Sure. Well, uh, my parents were both veterinarians, so I knew nothing about business. I went to college and got a degree in chemistry and biology. Thought I wanted to be a doctor. I loved the idea of Helping people, I love the science, but as I thought more about that and took some time off from college to try to figure out why I was wrestling with these questions that wouldn't go away, I concluded two things. One was I didn't like the nature of the work, being a doctor, uh, giving shots and cutting on people. <laughs> but more importantly, as we were touching on before, I became enamored with this idea of leverage or multiplication, that a doctor's contribution is limited to the eight or 10 hours of the uh, day that they work. And if you're working toward the right goals, the, our contribution to achieving those goals is multiplied by the number of people we have working together on those. And uh, so I really uh, was profoundly struck with this idea of organizations. And that literally was the reason I went into business. So I think I ended up getting a double major in college, uh, then went to Harvard business school and coming out of that, um, I joined a startup business, so I wanted to be what I described at the time, professionally naked. I had worked for a Hewitt Packard a company that had about 70,000 employees prior to business school, and I just wanted to see if I could do it and to make an impact and to see if this education would, would matter. And uh, and then one thing sort of led to another as we I helped build that business and started as the chief financial officer, got kicked upstairs to be president, and then... Um, uh, joined another company, was recruited by a board member. So many of the jobs were recruited by other people who I'd gotten to know along the way. And as I mentioned, I ended up building eight businesses over 40 years. Um, six out of the eight were successful. One sold for $10 billion and two were not. And I often talk about the ones that were not successful because I think God meets us uh, uh, everywhere and he fulfills his promise to be with us always in the what the world would call success or what it would call failure. What did those years at Harvard mean? Uh, they were uh, profoundly important to me, and uh, I viewed it in, in three ways. I thought this is uh, an education, which it certainly was. It was a key to open doors, and it was also a, an insurance policy 
thought, well, if I do a startup as I did, and uh, we lost everything we had, which wasn't very much. In fact, we had a negative net worth at the time. We could always fall back on that education. Um, but it has actually grown in me over the years. I got invited to speak at Harvard Business School in about 2009, I guess it was. And and uh, now it has become a big part of our lives. I speak almost every year. I chair the Harvard Business School Christian Fellowship and Alumni Association. And it's amazing to see these people of obvious, capa- obvious capacity of mind, but also capacity of heart, who want to uh, live for God in the world. And for example, uh, our family got involved with uh, Walking with the Poor in Central America. We've made now 22 trips to Central America over the last 15 years with this work. Um, bringing clean water to the people there and other things. And we ended up taking six trips, uh, six years in a row with Harvard graduate students. And so we said, you know, you, you won't do this for your whole life, but as, as Peter said to Paul, just remember the poor. And uh, we were really inspired by them And uh, as we took 50 or 60 students on those trips over the years. And, and then that led to a program we called An Adventure with God, where we um, we had a number of them say we'd love to continue these relationships. So we put together a, a program that was three years, uh, two long weekends for three years, so six long weekends about how do we live fully for God in the world. Uh, and it just turns into this remarkable adventure as we follow him into the places that he leads us. So the relationship with Harvard has, has continued and expanded. And I, uh, I think that God is really expanding the heart of Harvard. Uh, in spite of what we might see in the news, there's a, a real growing desire for, by people to live lives that matter, to make the world a better place. Barry, can a Christian youngster uh, go to Harvard, for example, and and not have their faith destroyed? Yes, they can. I think their faith will be challenged. Uh, there's no question about that. And I think it's different going as an undergraduate versus a graduate. Uh, but they will be exposed to all kinds of belief systems and uh, different kinds of people from all over the world. And I think it's really, really important for someone who has a faith going into an institution like that to stay close to God and to find like-minded people who are walking the journey out in the way that they are interested in doing. So it's a place of, you know, tremendous pressure academically. It's a very rigorous environment, of course. Um, But there's also pressure to see how other people are living their lives or to live in a, quote, secular way. Um, But I think my experience has been that, um, not just in an experience like Harvard, but, but hard experiences are what God uses to shape us into more complete human beings. As he described to Jeremiah at the potter's wheel, that you know, he will the clay was marred in his hands and he will make it into a shape that seems best to him. And these challenging situations are the strong thumbs of the potter just pressing us into the shape that seems best to him. And I know in my case that I have grown more through the challenges of my life than any other aspect of my life. And the world says to kind of skirt around the blackness, you know, let the don't let the black be uh, that black um, and just alleviate the pain or medicate the pain or anesthetize ourselves in some way. But my experience is the, the real call is to walk right through the center of the darkness and to let the black become blacker than black and out the other side. Um, if we 
submit ourselves to God in the midst of that, that he will bring us into this profound light that uh, enables us to see in ways that we had never seen before because we're being shaped um, by the challenges of those circumstances. Barry Rowan is our guest. Barry, what do you want people listening today uh, to take from your book and from our conversation? Well, I would uh, hope that uh, they would buy the book and uh, and learn from it. And I don't so much view it as a book as an invitation into a conversation with God. So my hope is that, that they would develop a life-giving perspective of their work as seen through the eyes of God uh, to the point that uh, they can experience what I experience, which is coming out of this deep struggle to find meaning in work, these transformational ideas have really animated and energized my work life for the last 25 years. So uh, I think the real point is you can live a life that matters and we can connect the daily with the divine and that we can uh, grow into the fullness of life that Jesus promises us uh, as we stay committed to him. So that would be my hope that they do that and they grow into that place individually. And as they do, the world becomes a better place that causes God to smile on the work that people are doing on his behalf. Barry, years ago, I heard, I shared a program with Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And he's speaking to a group of youngsters and he said, uh, Georgia drawl, he said, you can be honest and successful at the same time. And he said, um, I think saying to those youngsters, if you think you have to cheat and cut corners to be successful, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been ultra successful and you can be honest and successful at the same time. Quite a statement, huh? Quite a statement and an absolute truth in my view as well. Folks, Barry Rowan has been our guest. He's in Colorado. Uh, make sure you get the book, The Spiritual Art of Business, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. Well, I do want to wish you a, a wonderful Christmas, a very, very happy New Year. We'll be back with you next weekend right here with the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.